Hello and welcome to another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. Today we will be thinking about how to think. I'm Tom Malloy and with us is Professor Ruth Byrne, who is a Professor of Cognitive Science in the School of Psychology here in Trinity. Ruth's research expertise centers on human thinking, including experimental and computational investigations of reasoning and imaginative thought. That sounds like a mouthful, but it really gets to the core of what it is to be human. She's published over 100 articles and journals and several books. She currently teaches a foundation module on thinking to first and second year undergraduates and advanced modules on human reasoning and creative cognition to third and fourth year undergraduates. Welcome, Ruth. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. Well, thank you very much for coming. Recently, I, I was in the room when you received what's perhaps the highest honour that can be bestowed on an academic in Ireland, and that was from uh, teacher Michal Martin, which was a gold medal from the Royal Irish Academy. So you are kind of, let's, you know, let's not mince words here, you're at the pinnacle of, of your career and the pinnacle of academic achievement. But your decision to go to university seems to have been pretty random kind of initially. Can you kind of bring us back to the to the young Ruth Byrne? How, how did you decide to go to university? And when did you realize that this was something that was really important, that you wanted to devote your life to a topic of thinking, I suppose? Well, yeah, it, thanks, Tom. And it was a great honor to get that gold medal from the Royal Irish Academy. And you're right, I, I didn't have any plans to go to university originally. I don't think I ever knew anyone who'd been to university. So I just didn't know anything about it. It wasn't really on my horizon. And I fell into psychology really quite by accident. I went to University College Dublin when I was 17. And at that time, this was in the late 1970s, you went in to do an arts degree and then chose what subjects you wanted to do. So I loved English literature and I chose that as a major and you had to choose a second major. And I chose philosophy because I thought that would be quite interesting. And then you also had to, at that time, choose a third minor subject. And I was really at a loss about what to choose. And there were these student stands where where students would give you some advice about what to do on, on various things in that first week. And so some students said, oh, well, with English and philosophy, psychology is often a very good minor to do with that. So I, I chose psychology. And by the end of that first year, I just really, really liked it. And I had to actually repeat first year to do it as a major then when I decided that that I wanted to do. And then I really felt like I had hit my stride with it. The next few years were just great. I felt like I was um, doing what I wanted to do. And so, uh, and as I said at that award ceremony that you mentioned there uh, with the Taoiseach, for me, that award, it wasn't just a personal honour. I felt it was really a good testament to the value of providing fairer access to university education. And I, I remember when I started my undergraduate education being told by someone that there were fewer than one percent of students from the same background as me and and since then obviously things have progressed a little anyhow from the the latest higher education authority report 
indicated that about 10% of undergraduates in Irish universities are from disadvantaged communities. And, and I'm very aware that there's a great many people from disadvantaged communities with the sort of talent to make the kind of contribution that that award recognises, if only they had the opportunity to access a university education. So I'm really grateful to have had that opportunity. It, it was, as you say, a kind of random thing that happened. But it was mainly because my family at the time, my parents and my sisters were were really very supportive of the idea of going to university and, and very encouraging about it. And and what appealed to me about psychology, I suppose, was the focus on the human mind and the really very systematic and rigorous approach to trying to understand it. There's a lot to unpick there. Let, let, let's stick with the, the the last thought. We might come back to the disadvantage uh, kind of train of thought in a minute. But uh, why, why do you think you personally were so so attracted to that? Because many people are exposed to it. I mean. You must have talked to your classmates and so on. What, what do you think? Do you think this is it? And you are a psychologist to say the obvious way. You know, when you look at yourself and analyze yourself, what, what do you think was kind of inside you that, that made you respond in that way when so many other people don't? I think, you know, I think you can approach trying to understand the human condition from lots of different directions. And I think what appealed to me about English literature was that it really very directly conveys to us a lot of unique information that resonates with us often about what makes people tick mm. and about other people's experience that 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 really uh, is in tune with our own experience or else that throws a completely different light on it. So, so I had always been attracted to that. I think what was unique and really unusual for me about psychology was that it was coming at looking at the human condition from a very different perspective of of trying to go beyond opinion or um or generalities and get very much at what could be replicated what could be known as reliable information about the mind not just your own opinion or your own intuition about how your mind works works but but how could you get a, a really rigorous foundation that 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 applied to all people not just to to some subset of people so i think it was that kind of very rigorous experimental approach that appealed to me so it, it provides a key to, to a scientific a key based on scientific research that 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 one can stand over that's that's the, the kind of the attraction as opposed to as you say literature which is the imaginings of one person that can't really be replicated yeah I, I mean i think i was, the the kinds of questions were always appealing to me both from literature and from psychology and i think they both have a tremendous value but from different perspectives and so what we gain from reading English literature, I think, is invaluable and gives us a perspective that that we wouldn't otherwise have. So it's it's genuinely important. And so it wasn't that I was thinking psychology was doing it better. It was just a very different way of approaching those same questions. So it was dealing with the same kind of content, but with a slightly uh, a, a, a quite different um, method. Well, the, the 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 subject matter that you you research and teach and write about it's it's pretty complex, and I thought we might kind of approach it differently to how we normally do on pod, on this podcast, and and kind of go through three of your books and kind of just talk about the themes in them. So, 
Your most recent book was published by MIT, and it was called The Rational Imagination, How People Create Alternatives to Reality, which is a great topic. I mean, I defy anyone not to be interested in that. But what were you trying to explore in this book? And, and maybe can you answer the question, how do people create alternative realities? Okay. Yeah. So I wrote that book um, really to try to set out the big picture, I, I guess, the framework that connected lots of different individual projects that I was working on. And as you said, I do basic science research, I do foundational research on the human mind, and I carry out experiments on thinking and reasoning and the human imagination. And in my field, as you said, in cognitive science, it's journal articles that are the, the gold standard way to publish. So most of my publications are, are journal articles that report a series of experiments to test some specific theoretical predictions. And almost all the research that I do is collaborative with colleagues here in my home discipline in psychology, but also from philosophy and artificial intelligence and colleagues here in Ireland and from elsewhere in Europe and in America. And the book was an opportunity for me to kind of stand back from that and try to communicate what the common thread was that was occurring, that was holding together all these very separate projects. So I had done a lot of work on human reasoning for probably about 10 years or so. And the experiments there that we were carrying out were very much corroborating the view that to be able to reason well, what you have to do is use your imagination. You have to be able to construct small scale models or simulations in your mind and think about alternative possibilities and test the inferences that you're coming to by searching for counterexamples that contradict them. So it was very clear at that point from all of our work on reasoning that to be rational required imagination. And so at that point, then I got very interested in trying to figure out how the imagination works and what sorts of detailed cognitive mechanisms underpinned the imagination in the human mind. And what I focused on was everyday imagination, the kind of mundane imagination, if you like, the sort of thing that we all do very often in our daily life. We all create alternatives to reality. We think about a past event, say an exam that that didn't go well for us, an argument that ended badly. And we imagine how it could have turned out differently, if only, if only this had happened or that had happened instead. Or we think about a future event, an exam that we're about to take or a discussion that we have to have with a family member or a co-worker. And we think what if and we we imagine how things could turn out in different ways if this happens or if that happens. And so that kind of everyday imagination, it's what underlies a more exotic creative imagination when we envisage alternatives to reality in fiction or in film or in theatre or in great works of art or in literature. But it's also what helps us in our everyday lives to explain our own narrative to explain our past we work out how one thing caused another thing but say we think if only I'd studied a a wider range of topics I wouldn't have failed the exam and that 
also then it not only helps us to identify what the cause was of the bad outcome, it helps us to prepare for the future. By It helps us to figure out how we can prevent bad things happening again, how we can avoid having an exam disaster if we study a greater range of topics, say whatever it is we've identified as the possible cause. So it's that kind of imagination that I was writing about in that book. And it's often called the counterfactual imagination. It's something that we're all irresistibly attracted to. And what's extraordinary is it turns out that there's these remarkable regularities in the sorts of alternatives to reality that we all create. So, for example, if if we're thinking about a bad outcome, say a car accident, we will tweak it slightly to create a different scenario. But the extraordinary thing is we all tend to tweak it the same way. So we will tend to zoom in on anything unusual that happened in the situation. So we'll say, oh, I wouldn't have had that car accident if I'd driven home by my usual route or left Mm. my usual time. Or we spin on things that are within our own control rather than things outside our control. It wouldn't have happened if I'd swerved rather than it wouldn't have happened if the other guy had swerved. So these have been called fault lines in our representation of reality because they're these junctures that we all focus on. And so in that book, what I was arguing was that the human imagination itself follows very rational principles. So it's not only that reasoning depends on imagination, but also vice versa, that the imagination relies on very similar underlying cognitive processes that and, and and in the past you know people have sometimes taken the view that logical thought and creative thought are opposites of each other mm. and that a person is either very logical or else they're very creative whereas what our research indicates is that they're not opposites at all that in fact logical thinking and creative thinking rely on very similar cognitive processes to be logical requires good imaginative skills and to be creative requires good, clear, rational thinking. So more prerequisites than opposites. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting what you say about kind of our tendency to blame ourselves, because we, I suppose we, we're all the centre of our own narratives, aren't we? We see the world through our eyes. So that's a kind of a good thing and a bad thing, I guess, isn't it? Um, does that change, Ruth, how you look at, your everyday life I mean you know if you <laughs> I don't know if you you're in your kitchen you drop an egg on the floor do you do, do you think that this kind of research and these kind of insights um possibly make you a little bit easier on yourself than you think many other people are for for kind of blunders which which you can kind of see are part of a bigger context not you, you know does it have a practical application do you think That's a great question. I mean, certainly these kinds of thoughts, when we we think about how things could have turned out differently, it gives rise to a whole range of emotions. And that's part of the reason why psychologists are interested in it. It gives rise to uh, emotions like guilt and regret or on the positive side, hope and relief are emotions that are cognitive emotions. They arise because of the way we're thinking about a situation. We're thinking about what happened and we're comparing it to how it could have turned out differently. And in the comparison, the emotion arises. And similarly, our moral judgments are descriptions of blame and fault and responsibility or on the plus side of praise and credit also depend on these counterfactual thoughts, on these thoughts about how a situation not only could have turned out differently, but should have turned out differently. I think 
a lot of these um, tendencies that we have when we think about how things could have turned out differently, say focusing on things within our own control or um, on actions that we took or uh, on exceptional events, they're they're very ingrained. They're heuristics. They're these rules of thumb that that um, we've learned through experience and through our knowledge, but that are very quick and intuitive and immediate. And so overcoming them, it's not enough just to know about them. And that's true of all kinds of different thinking biases. It's important that we know about them, but just telling people about them doesn't help them to overcome them because these are, are very deeply ingrained. So so I don't think I am easier on myself just because I know of some of heuristics um, but but I there are some, you know they are these are are this information is often used in various therapies for example where you know if you can help people to to go beyond what was within their control to think of things that are outside their control or to refocus uh, if they're focusing on one particular cause to to refocus on an earlier cause and and those kinds of techniques can help people to get a perspective on the way in which they're reimagining the past because sometimes you know we can scaffold our way out of some of those heuristics with help that's one of the great <clears throat> promises of psychology i guess isn't it and of therapy i just, just one last question on this book because I, I noticed it's published by mit the massachusetts institute of technology which which does have a great um arts faculty but is famous worldwide for its its interest in kind of robotics and so on makes me wonder who is interested in your research? I mean, is this feeding into artificial intelligence a lot? Um, yeah, absolutely. So there's the practical applications of, of research on human reasoning and on the human imagination are quite widespread. So, so there's various different research teams that are interested in the, the output of basic research in, in the psychology of thinking. Obviously, one one uh, application is in terms of education and child development and uh, how you can help people to reason better. Another is in terms of, uh, for example, in business, people often want to know how to be able to negotiate and how to be able to uh, deal with business situations in a, a better way. And then a really major application is in artificial intelligence. And so uh, a lot of the time, what's of interest, and, and we ourselves write computer programs that simulate the theories that we have of how people reason or how they think counterfactually. So, for example, with some of the programs that I wrote with one of my colleagues, Phil Johnson Laird, what we were attempting to do was to write computer programs that would make the same sorts of inferences that people make and rely on the same sorts of representations and processes that we think people rely on. And so these programs would make those same inferences as people, they'd make the same mistakes that people make, and for the same reasons that we think people make those mistakes. And some of what the application of that is for artificial intelligence has been um, to try to improve the flexibility of AI reasoning programs. One of the key challenges within artificial intelligence in reasoning is ensuring that you're able to adequately take into account general knowledge, knowledge about the world 
And to be able to do that flexibly requires a, a lot of skill in simulating different kinds of situations. So that's been one very important application. Another application specifically of counterfactual thinking has been in artificial intelligence, has been in how you explain the decisions of artificial intelligent agents or, or artificial intelligence systems. And so I'm working with Mark Keane from the uh, Department of Computer Science in University College Dublin. We're co-supervising several PhD students who are looking at counterfactual explanations for the decisions that are made by AI systems. So these days there's lots of AI systems that can be making decisions. For example, if you apply for a loan, it might be turned down because of information from an artificial intelligence um, system. And you're entitled to an explanation for that decision. Mm. But the interesting mm. thing is that a lot of these AI programs are essentially like what are called black boxes in that, that we don't know what's going on. Even their designers don't know what's going on. Um, particularly within uh, the, the, the system. And that's partly because they're they're trawling through vast arrays of data. They have um, been trained up on huge amounts of information. And uh, so, so creating explanations, AI researchers are really interested in counterfactual explanations. And what our research is looking at is to what extent the counterfactual explanations say telling you that it, you know if you'd applied for less uh, money you would have got the loan or if you earn more money you, you'd have got the loan to what extent those explanations help people to trust the decisions that artificial intelligence systems are making so so there's widespread applications of it and algorithms are after all often just kind of codified codified prejudice really aren't they um that's that's very interesting. Is your, your book another book you wrote was called Human Reasoning? Is is that the same kind of area you mentioned? Human reasoning is that is that what you were looking at there? Yes. So 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 there's one book, Human Reasoning, that I wrote with um, uh, that was with Jonathan Evans and Steve Newstead uh, in the UK and. That was that was a textbook. The the real book on reasoning that had such practical applications was an earlier book called Deduction, and that was with Phil Johnson Laird, published by Earlbaum. And what that was about. So so after I did the undergraduate degree in UCD, I did a PhD here in Trinity. And then I went to Cambridge and I worked with Phil for three years there. And what we were doing was we were carrying out an extensive set of experiments on all of the main different sorts of deductive inference. And what we were trying to do was to test two alternative theories about how the mind works. At that time, the dominant view, the dominant theory was that how the mind works was that we have a set of rules in our minds. And when we're reasoning, what we're doing is following these preset rules. So, for example, if you're trying to make an inference about what to do in a situation, say you're, you're thinking about if the car in front breaks, then I better swerve. What you're doing, according to that dominant theory, is you're accessing a whole repertoire of logical rules of inference and you're constructing a derivation like a logical proof. Now, this is all happening outside your conscious awareness, but like a computer, that's what's happening in your mind behind the scenes. But and this was back in the, the, the late 80s, what we were beginning to discover in our experiments was that human reasoning seemed to be nothing like that. And it was nothing like constructing proofs from a set of rules. And instead, what it looked like 
was that people were trying to run a, a little simulation. So you're trying to to imagine the car in front of you braking and imagine yourself swerving. And what we consistently found in our experiments with lots of different sorts of inference was a really important clue. And it was this, that when people make an inference that can be made accurately by envisaging just a single possibility, a single model, then they're really accurate and the time it takes them is really short. But when instead they're trying to make an inference and it can only be made accurately by envisaging multiple possibilities, so more than one model, that's when they make mistakes. They take a long time to come to to a conclusion and the mistakes that they make are consistent with them just thinking about one of the possibilities. So we carried out lots of different experiments to pit the predictions of those different theories against each other, the logical rule theory and the mental model theory. And we also wrote those computer programs I was telling you about to simulate um, the, 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 the mental model theory. And when Phil and I wrote that deduction book together, what we were trying to do was communicate those experiments and those computational models and advance this idea, this theory that people reason by imagining small scale models or simulations of a situation. So sorry to keep bringing you back to <clears throat> practical things, but it's such a kind of core thing to, to what we are, you know, how, how we think. What can we do at a practical level? It sounds to me as if you're saying there, um, and I may be completely wrong, that, that, that one just needs to take one's time before one makes a decision. You've got to give yourself the time to to kind of examine and chew over and come up with these these alternative counterfactual kind of scenarios in order to make a good decision. Is, is that what you're saying or? or I think that's you know, along the, the, the right lines, Tom. I mean, it's a great question and there's lots of different ideas about how to improve how we think. But without a doubt, it's very helpful if you know for whether we're we're trying to reason or make decisions or solve problems or be creative or make discoveries or or gain insights if we want to be able to do that well i think it is helpful for us to to know this about thinking that that often when we make inferences or decisions or try to solve problems, we're doing it on the basis of an initial model that we formed, a first intuitive simulation of the situation. Often that's very immediate, very quick, almost an automatic interpretation. It's based, as I said, on our experience and on our knowledge, on various rules of thumb that we've developed, these heuristics. And it's a very economical way for us to think. It's very helpful to approach an inference or a decision in this way can often give us the right answer. That's why we rely on it so often. But it does sometimes lead us astray because it is our first immediate response. And one thing that we can do to improve our thinking is to allow a second natural process to occur, which we all have access to. And that's the capability for reflective judgment, for more deliberative, slower, controlled thinking. And that's where our ability to imagine different scenarios really comes into its own. We're able to simulate things from different perspectives, 
think through various possibilities and in particular to consider counterexamples to conclusions that that we've initially come to. And sometimes that reflective thought will lead us to exactly the same conclusion as our immediate Mm. intuitive thought. But often it will reveal some aspect that we want to consider further. And the, the thing is, there's this there's this quite remarkable paradox at the heart of human thinking that we we have this extraordinary capacity to consider other perspectives, to simulate a situation in different ways, to adopt different viewpoints on the same topic. But we just sometimes don't seem spontaneously to do that. It's like we have to be encouraged to do it, supported by some scaffolding of the environment or some interaction with other people. So sometimes we do need to remind ourselves that we have the ability to adopt a different framework, that we don't have to just go with the immediate arguments that support our initial judgment, but instead we can consider counter arguments, which we're usually fully aware of, but we just tend not to think them through spontaneously. Of course, thinking is very tiring, isn't it? I I happen to be reading, rereading Sherlock Holmes, which I do from time to time, and he's forever lying on sofas and talking about three pipe problems or taking cocaine even to to kind of try and think about uh different different scenarios what what do you do ruth when you when you want to think about something because clearly the type of work you do requires a lot of thinking do you go for a walk maybe or do you sit still in an armchair how do you do you find if you want to kind of think freshly and and think about different scenarios do you find you need to be in a different space to do that I think there's lots of different things that I certainly draw on and you've touched on some of those there I think the environment that you're in is very important in changing the environment just giving yourself a break from it there's good evidence that that people is, is sometimes it's called incubation where you just kind of you reach an impasse and you just leave a problem aside for a while and and when you come back to it you can take a fresh perspective on it and for me it's everything from taking the dog for a walk to to going for a swim in the sea or or doing some garden or chatting with people. Like I said, an awful lot of my work is collaborative with other people and you get great ideas and fresh insights from talking through a problem and or, or writing your way through it. So I think there's lots of different techniques that people um, can rely on. And and often it is just finding the one that that suits you. But like you said, and I love Sherlock Holmes, too. Um, oh, like, you, like you said, um, thinking is exhausting and people are are, sometimes the the phrase cognitive misers are used about people because we have limited working memories and that Mm. means that it's very difficult for us to keep a number of multiple alternatives in mind or to think uh, several steps ahead. So, it, it, you know, it is very hard for us to do that. And we do try to get away with representing as little as possible and being as economical as possible using these rules of thumbs, thumb and heuristics. And, and they are very, they're invaluable. I mean, they do help us. Uh, but in situations where, you know, there's a lot at stake where you really need to come to the right inference or make the right decision it's well worth giving yourself the opportunity to think it through in different ways with different people it, it, from in different situations different environments so that you just maximize the chances that you have of coming across counterexamples to what your first um thought about it might be 
it, it seems to me that, that what you're discussing is very much almost the, the personification of multidisciplinary approach. You know, universities, people in universities, they're forever talking about multidisciplinary, and, and a lot of the time it's, it, it can be blather. But but you're using you're writing computer programming, you're drawing on a on a, on a love of literature, you're you're uh, you know researching. I presume you're also thinking about some of the um, scientific advances and how the brain is shaped. And now that we can see how the brain moves, that might that probably helps. So there's a lot there's a lot of different skills that that one might not necessarily associate with being a, a psychologist and studying psychology, but the the Probably people listening uh, to us who, who might be thinking that they would like to study psychology. I wonder what sort of skills they would need, and, and what thought of, what sort of people thrive uh, in psychology. That's a great question. Yeah, the, and certainly you're right that that multidisciplinarity is essential in research. And there's you know there's a view that that you don't want to to reinvent the wheel and that the the mind is too important to be left to one discipline alone. And so the whole point of cognitive science is that it it's an umbrella term that brings together cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence and philosophy, neuroscience, linguistics, anthropology, all these different disciplines that all look at the human mind in slightly different ways. And it has also begun to expand to to English literature and other um, creative endeavours because all of these have really valuable insights into how the mind works. Psychology itself, as you say, it's it's really popular. And I think we're very fortunate to be living in a time when people are really self-aware and are genuinely interested in discovering more about themselves and more about other people. And I think that's fantastic. I've been teaching psychology to undergraduates now for over 30 years. And I'd say that the students who get the most out of psychology, studying psychology, are those who have a real curiosity about figuring out what makes people tick. And they're often also students who are interested in, like I said at the outset, going beyond just perhaps hearing about opinions to being interested in how to gather very rigorous, scientific, reliable information about people. And what they'll spend a lot of their time with us learning about is not only about all of the discoveries over the past century or so that make up our body of knowledge about psychology, but they'll also be learning how to carry out experiments with human participants, how to test hypotheses in lots of different domains about the human mind or about children's development or about social interactions and how to properly analyse and interpret those data, how to engage in modelling it, for example. And so often the students who pursue psychology beyond an undergraduate degree, and there are a lot who do. So in the School of Psychology, we have probably about, I'd say about 50 PhD research students and maybe about 30 postdoctoral researchers. And they're often they're very deeply committed to understanding and contributing to this scientific body of knowledge about people. And often there are also students who pursue psychology beyond an undergraduate degree also often have an interest in some aspects of clinical or counselling applications of that knowledge. And in the School of Psychology, I think there's probably about another 50 or 60 students who are doing postgraduate degrees of that sort who are essentially trying to apply the fundamental scientific knowledge that we have about people to try to help people when things go wrong. 
So you, the kind of you and your colleagues, are, are you the modern Freuds? That that it, it's like it, it seems like there are no more Jungs and Freuds kind of writing these magnum opuses, laying it all out, saying this is how it is. Is this where psychology has gone into kind of uh, a, a much more research-based discipline, um, as you say, a collaborative discipline, and a multidiscipline multidisciplinarity? Is that is that is that a kind of a, a crude summary? Well, I mean, interestingly, psychoanalysis, the, the Freudian um, theory uh, was always quite separate from psychology. That's not where psychology arose out of it. Um, it arose, psychology really emerged from philosophy and it was a particular approach okay. to philosophical questions, but with an experimental method in in, uh, in various laboratories that started up um, in in the late 1800s and so the, you know there's there's a long tradition in psychology of experimental um scientific approaches to understanding these big questions um and so it it's it, the, the relationship of psychology with philosophy has always been very close and, and really just uh, a, a different method applied to both of them. Um, and, and psychology has always been this kind of evidence-based attempt to understand the human mind. And then in, in its therapeutic um, applications, it's a kind of science, scientist practitioner model of, you know, therapists who are attempting to make sure that all of the, their therapeutic interventions are very solidly grounded in scientific evidence. Can, can I just, um, as a last question, Ruth, just take you back to where we began. You talked about uh, disadvantage. You talked about uh, coming from a cohort that that isn't, wasn't at the time in in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, kind of represented uh, enough in universities. And you talked about how it's got better, but it's it's not where most of us would like it to be what what advice would you give um somebody who 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 comes from a disadvantaged background and and might be considering going to uh university and a university like trinity what, what would you say to them well, first of all, to definitely do it. I think that it's um, it, it really is invaluable and I think it opens up a whole different world of perspectives and of opportunities. And I think it's it's a really valuable thing for someone to do. I think it can be very difficult um, to, to do it financially. And I think that, as you say, it's we're not where we want to be with it in Irish universities. You know, ideally, there should be equal representation from uh, on the basis of merit, not on the basis of um, financial uh, circumstances. And so, uh, you know, and I think that there do need to have to be quite major changes in the way that that uh, accessing university education is financially supported, as well as all the, the other changes. And there are, there, you know, there's great work being done in the access programs in in all of the universities um, and and it's a it's a it's a very complex issue that's been addressed from different uh perspectives but the underfunding i think is a is a crucial thing but for any individual from a disadvantaged background i think one of the disadvantages is that the you know there may not be role models there um to just to to help you to know what the value of an education is 
in something uh, uh, that might seem as remote as psychology. And I think that um, coming to university, becoming familiar with the different kinds of disciplines and uh, examining and exploring all of the different options that it affords to you is really valuable. And there's quite a lot of supports within universities now to help individuals from disadvantaged backgrounds to have that kind of role model or the, the, the kind of information that might be helpful to ensure that, that you get the best out of the university experience. Um, and so it's something that I'd, I'd be really very encouraging of everybody to take the, the, the opportunity to do it because um, it, it really supports the kind of very different talents that people have and helps people to to realize the potential that they have and and that's always something that's good professor ruth, ruth byrne thank you very much indeed thank you tom